Welcome back to Crazy Faith Talk. I'm Steve. I'm Erica. And I'm Sarah. So friends, last week we started a new series about um, some interesting things that we have done as pastors um, that aren't in the typical job description of pastors, if there is such a thing. And it all started because I had mentioned uh, to my colleagues that there was this one time I was almost a roller derby chaplain. And so this week we're going to turn things over to Sarah and see what happened to her in her interesting story about ministry. So one time when I was living in Canada, I was late to Sunday worship because there was a wolf outside my door. Oh, goodness gracious. And I had to wait for the wolf to leave. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the very short of that story. But, you know, I have to back up to explain this story usually because, um, so as an ELCA pastor, you know, a Lutheran pastor, Part of our formation in seminary is that we have to take a year of internship where we follow, well, where we go to a congregation and we follow a supervising pastor and we basically learn how to be pastors by following this person around and then doing by being student pastors ourselves. And my internship site fell through. I was supposed to go somewhere in Ohio and that site fell through at the last minute. So my seminary had this little bit of a panic of, we have an extra student, we don't have any more sites, what do we do? And so they kind of, uh, my contextual education person emailed all the other contextual education people in the other seminaries. And that same week got an email from another seminary that she had not emailed, because this was a Lutheran seminary in Canada, saying, we have a site that is open. We really want to fill it because this might be their last opportunity to have an intern before the pastor retires. He's done nine other interns. They've all been excellent pastors. We really want this church to have one more intern. And so my my seminary emailed them back. was like, we have a student. Let's set up some interviews, and which, of course, was via phone. <laughs> And so we interviewed, we kind of, you know, I started applying for a student visa. And next thing I knew, I had a plane ticket to go to Prince Rupert, British Columbia, which is a little island town way up north, almost to Alaska, and super isolated. And this was such a cool experience. Um, like I said, I was their 10th intern, so that the church saw this as part of their ministry is forming new pastors for the church. And I wasn't their first American intern either, so they had a very wide definition of church because they knew that they would probably never see any of their interns come back to their synod or even necessarily their country. And it was a really cool site because, again, it was on an island. It was a fishing community, so I learned to like seafood. <laughs> I did not like seafood before I went there, but... That was part of the requirements of going, because you had to <laughs> eat fish. And um, as well as served many different contexts, because my supervising pastor was the only ordained ELCIC pastor in like a couple hundred miles. So there was a couple of congregations within that radius that just didn't have pastors, because they couldn't get pastors to agree to live 
in such isolated communities. So we were responsible for providing monthly worship and pastoral care to a congregation on the Haida Gwaii Islands, which is also called the Queen Charlotte Islands. And so to get there, I would board a float plane on Friday, fly over to the very northern tip of the island, get picked up by somebody um, who would drive me the two and a half hours south to the bottom tip of that island. I would board a ferry, take a 15-minute ferry ride to the island south of the main island, and then get picked up by another person who would drive me the 15 minutes to the town where the church was in. And I would spend all weekend there uh, doing visits, leading worship, and then bright and early Monday morning before the sun came up, somebody would drive me back to the ferry, I would get on the ferry, go back up north, and then catch the big ferry that was going to Prince Rupert, which was an eight-hour ferry ride. And that was my weekend. Wow. So <laughs> That's a, quite a commute. <laughs> it was. So that was one church. Another church we provided pastoral care for, I would have to get dropped off at the train station. I would get on a train and take an all-day train ride to in, inland and go and serve a congregation very similarly, do visits, lead worship, and then I'd have to go get back on the train hmm. and go back to Prince Rupert. And this is how I found out that every mode of transportation other than cars makes me car sick. <laughs> <laughs> I was unaware of this before I went, but it turns out float planes make me sick, ferries make me sick, trains make me sick, <laughs> and it was once a month. I would be either going to one of the congregation on the island, or I'd be going to the congregation inland wow. every month. Wow. Wow. For a year. For a year. Wow. I got Methodist colleagues who can no longer complain about yeah. <laughs> their charges and their commute on Sunday mornings. But it was, it was a blast. I loved every minute of it. I mean, yeah, the being motion sick was not exactly fun, but it was okay. I would just take some, some drugs and I would sleep. <laughs> Um, before we even get to the wolf part of your story, which I know we have yet to spend time talking about, um, but like I remember talking to or listening to um, uh, pastors in one of our uh, companion synods uh, who serve in Tanzania in, in uh, sub-Saharan Africa, and hearing them talk about uh, pastors having five or six points that they were intended to, to serve in a, in a weekend to go and lead worship at, and I remember hearing somebody say, in that part, uh, in Caragua Diocese in uh, in Tanzania, the well-respected, tenured pastors are the ones with motorcycles, and the mm -hmm. ones who are the newer ones have bicycles. But like, mm -hmm. like that's how you know you've arrived is when you have a motorcycle to get between <laughs> your six points. But like, th there's just the sense of like the need is there. We need people to lead worship in all these communities and to be with us. And so that's just the arrangement. There will be six points to travel to, but like. All the lengths that those people go to, and it's funny to think here, half a world away in northern Canada, in in, in the the Pacific side of, of Canada, that there is this sense of like that urgency. Of we need someone who can travel all these different ways. This leg, the ferry to the plane to the boat to the <laughs> the bus ride. I mean, like all that. That's amazing. Yeah. And so when I was in seminary, the big push was if you arrive at a congregation who does not have weekly communion, 
that should be your first big fight <laughs> is to try to get weekly communion. And that's just what you should do. So, you know, I've been hearing this for the past two years. I arrive at my internship site and lo and behold, they have monthly communion. The first Sunday of the month is when they had their communion. And I was about ready to fight this. I was like, oh my gosh, this is wrong. Like, we should be having it every week. Like, why aren't we having it every week? And my supervisor looked at me and he goes, because I'm only guaranteed to be here one Sunday a month that mm -hmm. the rest of the time it might be you. And you're a student pastor. You can't do communion. Mm -hmm. And so the first Sunday of the month was the main congregation's communion. And then wherever my supervising pastor was, um, like if it was his month to go over to Haida Gwaii, then that's who would get mm -hmm. communion the second Sunday. And then the third Sunday was whoever was going out to Smithers, which was the inland mm -hmm. community. Um, then if it was him then they would get communion. And then um, oftentimes the fourth Sunday was, I don't know, mm -hmm. but we didn't have communion. <laughs> but um, it was just, you know, of course they couldn't have communion every week because the, mm -hmm. second, the second week was somebody was in Haida Gwaii and the third week somebody was in Smithers. And if it was him, then they didn't have communion. Yeah. So, Sounds very early Methodist in the circuit riders. It, it was very much <laughs> like the circuit riders, except I was also there and... Um, I once had a, a two and a half hour conversation with somebody as they were driving me from the airport to the ferry about how come I couldn't do communion. Mm. Like if it was a month where I was in Haida Gwaii, they couldn't have communion because I couldn't do it. And I was like, it was two and a half hours of trying to explain to him, I'm a student. <laughs> I'm not <laughs> authorized yet. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and yeah. I'm guessing that each of these congregations were not huge. No. So, one of the things I think is really cool about this whole arrangement, as you're telling the story, is, like, you know, our, our culture tends to be like, well, you know, if it was a huge, big, you know, booming church, of course you'd make every effort to make sure someone was there. But, like, this is like, nope, in the congregations, there's just a small number of people mm -hmm. in a small village. These people matter, too. And so it's worth going to the effort to make sure there's someone who's there to attend to their concerns, to lead worship with them, to preach, to visit. Mm -hmm. that, I mean, the, the, the bigness or smallness and the number of people or the number of dollars is, is not about that. It's you matter wherever you are. I think that's a really powerful witness mm -hmm. that... Um, that's a story that doesn't often get told. Mm -hmm. Yeah, both of these congregations that we visited had averaged about 10 people, 10 mm -hmm. members. Mm -hmm. um, so the one on Haida Gwaii, they had an apartment on top of their church building. It was an A-frame building. And so when it was my turn, I got to stay in the apartment, um, which sometimes I didn't want to because uh, at one point they had wharf rats which if you've ever seen, if you've ever seen uh, the Princess Bride and those rats, the runes of unusual size. They wharf rats are almost as big as those. <laughs> I don't believe they exist. They are the size of possums. Inconceivable. They're giant. Wow. And I had been told that they there was only one, and they had managed to kill it or something. But um, I definitely did bring my cat with me that time. That the next time, just but, you know. Granted, the rat was probably as big as her, but <laughs> at least I would have some warning maybe in the middle of the night and not just wake up with a rat on my bed. Um, but yeah, they had an apartment for visiting pastors, and their usual spiel to the entire synod was, hey, if you want to come and take a retreat, a personal retreat, you can come and stay in our apartment in our church building for free, 
we just ask that you lead a worship service while you're here. Mm -hmm. And that was their arrangement. They couldn't pay anybody anything to mm -hmm. get there or to preach or anything. But they had this open invitation to any <laughs> pastor that if you want to take a personal retreat, come. You're welcome. Just lead worship. So, by the way, if anybody wants to go to Hawaii, I'm pretty sure this arrangement is still wide open. Good to know. So, you know, just let me know. And I will, <laughs> I will hook you up. Set those connections. Good to know. So, all right. I, I, I have appreciated getting to hear about the train ride and the ferry ride and the various other transportation. But um, I heard there's a wolf in this story. <laughs> yeah, there, yeah. there is. Tell, tell us about the wolf. So, um, it's, it's Canada. There are wildlife. Um, even so, the, I lived on an island, but the island was separated by the mainland by just a very small channel of the sea. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't very big, and there was a bridge connecting the island to the mainland. So occasionally we would get scarier wildlife, like wolves. <laughs> and when the wolves came into town, usually a couple of dogs would disappear before they got chased away and relocated outside of town. <laughs> And, um, but I was getting ready to leave and I happened to just glance out my window and there was a big giant wolf just sitting there by the trash can looking at me. And I, so I just sat, stood there for a while and watched him cause can't go outside when there is a wolf between you and your car. And so eventually he got up and walked out of my sight, but I wasn't sure if he was gone, gone, or if he was just on the other side of the building where he would still be able to see me if I were to get into my car, or if he, I don't know, was gone. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, so I gave it a few more minutes, and, you know, was getting antsy because it's almost time to start church, and, or at least do all of the stuff to get ready for church because I think my supervisor was gone and mm -hmm. so it was up to me to like unlock the door and make sure communion was set. And, um, so eventually I very cautiously walked out of my um, basement apartment and left the door unlocked because if I had to hurry to get back inside <laughs> I did not want to have to unlock the door and was shaking my keys and, and just casually saying very loudly, hey, if there's a wolf out here, I'm just going to my car, don't eat me. And made it to my car, and it was fine. But Out of, yeah. out of curiosity, were you also saying it in French in case it was the French-speaking Canadian wolf, or only in English? Mm, only in English. In British Columbia. British Columbia. That's the wrong confidence. Okay, yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, in British Columbia, there's, you know, you often take French immersion in school, but... Um, most people don't practice French after gotcha. they graduate, so not a lot of people actually speak French. So the wolves are not bilingual either. <laughs> <laughs> well, if they are, it's probably one of the native languages. Gotcha, yeah. gotcha, gotcha. Did you have uh, interaction with much um, of uh, native uh, Canadian populations uh, there? A little bit. Um, we were, so Haida Gwaii is the land of the Haida. Mm -hmm. So the Haida is a tribe. And so I had a little bit of interaction with them, but most of the people that were populating the town that I visited were um, very not native. Gotcha. Um, in fact, there was quite a large section of them who moved there during Vietnam. Mm -hmm. They were draft dodgers, or um, what's that thing, peaceful protesting of 
Conscientious mm-hmm. objectives. Yes, yes. That, that's what I'm looking for. Um, that's a much better phrase than draft dodgers. But, <laughs> um, and there was another tribe that like Prince Rupert was actually like in the middle of their territory. But I don't remember what tribe it was. And even if I remembered, I probably wouldn't be able to pronounce it anymore because it's, sure. it's been a while. Um, but yeah, a little bit, not a whole lot. The majority of my congregants were Scandinavian descent. Gotcha. And did they trace their ancestry uh, all to one particular area of Scandinavia? Did you have mostly Norwegians or Swedes mostly, or Finns? Mostly Norwegians, okay. but also some Swedes. Okay. Did they get? Did the Norwegians and Swedes get along? You don't have to go too far back before that's a hot-blooded feud. <laughs> I, mostly, I think. I, I hadn't heard any stories. That's good. <laughs> she was only there for a year. You that's, know? True. that's true. That's true. Um, so... Let me ask you this. Now living in a place with fewer wolves, um, but where there are uh, creatures like bear that are a live option, you you might cross Mm -hmm. your path where we live, and certainly deer. Um, uh, What what does that do to your sense of ministry, to be like going about ordinary business and be like, oh, I might run across a bear today, Um, or oh, I might run across, or a deer might run across my car today. Like, I don't know. That's part of ministry here and where, where we live now. That is just sort of, this is what it is. And, like, when I go and talk with colleagues who live in much more metropolitan urban areas, like, even talking about deer is strange to them. Like, oh, there's any animals at all? You know, like, it, we're, or, and we do get bear from time to time uh-huh. around here. Like, I don't know, does that, does that affect either of your sense of, like, what ministry is like that we live in a place where bear might interrupt your Sunday plans? I haven't encountered anything like that. Like, I've had close encounters with deer, but I mean, that I've always lived in western Pennsylvania. That's just the natural thing in this area. Um, I know bear live up behind my house now mm-hmm. in the cemetery, and so have not encountered them and not have really heard any stories of current parishioners that have encountered them. I've had some friends who've had encounters with bears from, mm-hmm. like, my home church and other places. Um, but thankfully, no bear encounters <laughs> either at the house or at the church or any destruction by bear or deer. So it doesn't really affect me either because I grew up in Iowa. And while we didn't have bears, we had mountain lions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, because I lived out mm-hmm. in the country, so, you know, that we frequently saw their footprints. And, mm-hmm. you know, every once in a while your cat would go missing. And mm-hmm. you could mm-hmm. just kind of assume, oh, yeah, that mountain lion. It joined the tribe of the mountain lions. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and where I currently live, it's in the middle of several Amish communities. So I don't even have deer mm. because the Amish communities aren't restricted by hunting seasons. Mm. So if there's a deer anywhere near my house, an Amish farmer is probably going to get it mm-hmm. and um, be smoking it before the day's up. Mm-hmm. So I don't even get deer. I just have a cornfield that I get to watch grow. <laughs> The thing that I've been thinking about this is, like, um, most of the time, the, the the moments where my ordinary, weekly, you know, civilized life of schedules and calendars and appointments and roads uh, intersects with animals, it, I, I treat it like it's an inconvenience or a nuisance. But mm-hmm. there's times when I can stop and be like, this is a reminder that we are still in God's creation that's an awful mm-hmm. lot bigger than just human beings. And we have a way, especially... Um, especially, you know, church people, religious folks, assuming that, like, 
the story of creation is everything is a prelude up to human beings and that we're really all that matters mm-hmm. as 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 if god didn't say about all the other days before humans it's good it's good it's good it's good yeah. like we have a way of like focusing on well god, all god really cares about is people and animals are just in a, mm-hmm. a trial run or something but like we live in this creation that is first god's creation second all of wildlife's creation and third mm-hmm. we get to live in and that we yeah. are tenants or we get to live in almost like being the Scandinavian uh, inhabitants of land that belong to other tribes. So like this reminder of like every time you cross paths with someone who was there before you, there's this reminder of, oh, I'm the newcomer and how mm-hmm. I got here, there may be a certain amount of suspect mm-hmm. of like how I got here, um, but that we're reminded that we don't own this. We belong in something that's much bigger and, and, and that the wildness isn't bad. I mean, a lot of mm-hmm. the stories that we tell in our culture of the the animals are the villains, and the wolf is bad, and the, the bears mm-hmm. are bad. They're villains, and our job is to either get rid of them or tame them. But, like, the the, the biblical narrative doesn't exactly have that. It's like, mm-hmm. no, the animals are, are the wildness of animals. That's how God made them. And the, there's something beautiful about the, the, the wildness of mm-hmm. creation and that... Um, that that's that's worth I guess maybe naming and honoring rather than oh what an inconvenience how come these deer are invading my turf oh no it's it's really the other way around <laughs> I'm invading and I mean like I'll hear I'll hear that kind of thought come out of my mouth too from time to time like it, we used to get deer in our backyard when we lived and we lived right in the town here of the of the thirty thousand population town of Indiana Pennsylvania where we lived we get deer in our backyard and I would say things like the deer got into my land and mm-hmm. like oh no the deer are like this is a place where apples are. I will eat the apples because I'm a deer. Like, and I'm the one who's invading. Um, but I, I guess that's an important maybe reminder or refresher that like we live in this world that's first and foremost God's world mm-hmm. and is much bigger than just me and the things that I think are oh so important from day to day. So speaking of deer, I okay. do have a really good Prince Rupert deer story. Okay. Um, so again, this is an island. Um, where the natural predators of the area are discouraged from living on, like the bear, the wolves, like they are discouraged from staying there. However, you cannot really discourage deer from living anywhere, especially in a place where you chase away all of the natural predators. So there was an overpopulation of deer on this little tiny island that Prince Rupert lived on. And they were everywhere. But they were the smartest deer I have ever met, um, and they figured out the crosswalks. <laughs> so they would travel, like when they were in town, like in downtown, they would walk on the sidewalks because the cars weren't on the sidewalk, and the crosswalks were always just ready to go, so even if nobody was there to push a button, there wasn't a button to push, it just would cycle through with Mm. the traffic lights of, okay, this is the time for the people to cross. The deer would wait until it turned and said it was their turn to go, and then they would cross the street. It was the most amazing thing I have ever seen. So did it make noise? It's kind of like the ones here, like, did it ding, or like, there was a noise or something for the crosswalk? I can't remember. Because that makes sense, like, if there's a noise or something, the deer would eventually learn what that... But I honestly just can't remember. It's been long enough, and um, I didn't walk in downtown very often because I didn't live anywhere near downtown, yeah. so I would drive there and usually <laughs> park in the place where I was close to where I was going and then go to the place and then get back in my car and go. 
But now I seriously can't help but hear the theme song from Northern Exposure in my head and picture the moose walking through the crosswalk in that show and the opening theme song. Nice. See, so all that, I'm thinking is the Jimmy Stewart impersonator that's on our crosswalk that right, tells me right, where right. you're crossing Here at. in Indiana, we have oh, a Jimmy Stewart voice that uh, leads you on a crosswalk. And I don't know that any deer have learned to recognize what no, he's I, I, no. I, mean, I barely understand what the impersonator is trying to say. <laughs> Can I ask... Um, when when you had this experience, and I'm, uh, like I remember from my internship experience, there's a certain amount of like this is just what the process is. This is what you're supposed to do next. I'll learn something, and you're never quite sure what you'll get out of the internship experience that will make a difference in the way you do ministry. It's sort of a I don't have a choice. This is what I'm going to do, so I'll learn whatever I learn. But looking back now, from having had this experience, especially running across wolves and crosswalk trained deer, uh, and all the modes of transportation of planes, trains, and automobiles to get to <laughs> these various places. What, what what from that experience has stayed with you? What what difference did it make that that became a part of your journey? I think ultimately that we are church together. Hmm. And that that doesn't necessarily have a one path fits all. Mm-hmm. And that for this place, it made sense for congregations to work together to do ministry um and that you know this smallish congregation in prince rupert who were struggling themselves and had you know were seeing the decline in membership still saw it as part of their ministry to not only raise up new leaders um for the church but also that because they were privileged enough to have a full-time pastor and an intern sometimes, that they were willing to share that valuable resource with other congregations. And the other congregations weren't really necessarily able to pay, like to help mm-hmm. out that the cost of having mm-hmm. a full-time minister and an intern, because you still also have to pay the intern a little bit so that they don't starve, um, which, you know, I appreciate it. <laughs> um, but they saw that as just part of their ministry of, hey, here are these even smaller struggling congregations. Mm-hmm. They don't have a pastor. They're probably never going to get a pastor because at this point they have 10 members and they live really far away from everybody. Um, but, hey, we're going to share our pastors mm-hmm. because we have pastors and mm-hmm. we're privileged to have mm-hmm. pastors. So here you go. Have them for a weekend. And that was just part of their ministry. And I think that's something that is really valuable to learn now in a lot of places because many congregations are facing lower attendance, less mm-hmm. money in the, in the collection plate, and how do you share the resources that you do have mm-hmm. in order that ministry might still happen. Mm-hmm. I, really, I really like um, that point you made a little bit ago about... Um, going in with the theological training of we should all be advocating for having communion every week and getting it once you went there like oh there's a reason why that's not where they're where they're at and it's not that all the good theological reasons you've been given for why Lutheran Christians should have communion once a week it's not that those stop being true or valid but there was also this oh in this context that's not a fight that's worth having that doesn't make sense for where these people are at and for what their needs are and so it wasn't even like a you're doing it wrong but we'll let it slide because you know but it was more like no you're doing exactly what makes sense for your mm-hmm. context and that is a really important learning i think uh when it can be really tempting to see the world in terms of 
uh, are you doing church the right way? You know, especially mm-hmm. when you talk about things of God, there's a right way, and then if you're not doing it the right mm-hmm. way, it must be the wrong way. And instead to be able to say, there's reasons that this might be the right approach in this place, and there's reasons why in this place it's going to look different, and this place it's going to look different. And it might even be true to say, what they're doing in point A is exactly what they ought to be doing for point A, and what they're doing in point B is exactly what they mm-hmm. ought to be doing for point B. And to pick one model up and move it to the other point, that doesn't, that's not going to work. And that to, mm-hmm. to own that and to recognize that, that, that's an important realization, rather than, um, nope, there's only one way that this can look, and church always has to look like this, and you pick it up and pluck it down, and it's the same in every spot. I think it's it's beautiful how those churches work together because I know both of you serve multi-point charges. My first was a multi-point charge. And and sometimes churches don't work so well together. That's if we're being honest about things, it's just, you know, um how do you see um you know, the churches like that you're serving here in the states now um for both of you, how do you see them working together well? How do you see them like do they reflect that kind of same ministry that you had up in Canada or do you see a difference and and could that be because you know we always hear Canadians are so welcoming and so friendly (laughs) (laughs) you know and Americans are a little bit more like this is mine I need to hold on to this so while that stereotype is kind of true at the same time I have friends from Canada I know um my internship site and you know technically it was not a multi-point technically it was Mm the one congregation who's willing to share their pastors. And that's all they shared. Yeah. And which helped tremendously by the fact that these three congregations were separated by hundreds of miles. Mm-hmm. They couldn't get together to do ministry this is together true. Yeah. in any way other than sending people to come and to mm-hmm. go and help. Like uh, at one point the church in Hyderabad needed a new roof. Like five or six guys from the Prince Rupert congregation who has worked on roofs before, but not professionally, went over and spent two weeks there and put on a new roof. Mm. And, I mean, other than that, though, they didn't really work together because they mm. didn't, they yeah, couldn't. you couldn't, yeah. Um, whereas here, again, my multi-point parish is three radically different congregations. There's yeah. the big in-town church, there's the small rural church, and then there's the campus ministry, mm-hmm. right? Like, those are three very different, but... They are all within a 15-minute drive of each other. They can get together for Bible study every once in a while. They can get together and um, have a potluck. Mm -hmm. And I think that changes the dynamic. Mm -hmm. Because suddenly they are close enough to interact with each other. They're close enough to be in relationship with each other. And sometimes that's very scary. Especially in this world where it feels like we're competing for resources. And so their interactions with each other are more often of not how can we share this resource, but am I getting enough of this resource? Mm-hmm. Um, or am I getting shortchanged? Is the pastors paying more attention to the other congregation? Mm-hmm. Does the other pa- do the pastors love the other congregation more? Um, and so, again, I think the fact that they are in such close proximity and also this cooperative ministry that I'm in, is brand new. Yeah. So there's You're still, still learning. Very we're much. still very much learning how mm-hmm. to get along together, how to work together, and how to share resources. Mm-hmm. Whereas, again, the congregation in Canada that I served had been in this relationship with these congregations for at least a decade. Mm-hmm. Um, are there other things that you would commend to 
us, to Erica and me, who didn't have that experience in Canada, that we could learn without having to go to Canada to do this for a year? Are there are there things that you would say to us like, here's the here's a uh, nugget, or here's a something to take with you that you don't have to spend a year in Canada now to learn, but like that would you would commend to us for our kind of ministry? Um, I think it's to have to have the congreg or to encourage your congregations to form a strong identity. Hmm. Um, that, you know, especially the Prince Rupert congregation, the one that I was actually called to serve, they knew who they were. They were a congregation who trained up new leaders and who shared their resources mm-hmm. with others. And that was that was who they were. And so that was their ministry, and they owned it. Um, I don't know if they necessarily had a mission statement um, or a motto or anything like that, but they knew what their ministry was. Mm-hmm. And because they had that identity and they knew what that ministry was, they had a focus. And that is, I think, how they managed to survive. And mm-hmm. they are still able to have a full-time pastor in this isolated community um, they ended up having one more intern after me, and she went back and did her senior year of seminary, um, I think in Southern, the um, Lutheran oh, yeah, mm-hmm. down south, and uh, during her year, her senior year, my our supervisor retired, and they ended up calling her, hmm. and which was very good because it, it was one of those things that... I know that the bishop of that synod was hoping that one of the interns would come back mm-hmm. because they had lived there for a year. They knew what it meant to live in that isolation um, because it was a two-hour car ride to get to the nearest town. Mm-hmm. Like, So it's isolated, isolated. Mm-hmm. So you have to know how to live there. You have to know how to do ministry there so that you're not completely isolated. You have to know how to build those relationships with colleagues who don't live anywhere near you, Uh because the majority of that synod, uh, it's the British Columbia Synod, is in Vancouver. Mm, That is where 80% of your colleagues are, is in Uh Vancouver. Um, So you have to know how to be in relationship with colleagues, and not just be a lone wolf, Uh because that's very bad. Like, don't be a lone wolf in (laughs) ministry. Bringing it back around to the actual lone wolf that you saw, it turned out to be the villain after all. But sometimes the lone wolf that's the villain is the one in the mirror. Don't be that. Don't be that. Got it. Well, good. I I appreciate getting to hear the story of the time you met a wolf and relate to church. Um, So thanks for joining us for this episode, and uh, join us for more storytelling on Crazy Faith Talk. See you later. Bye.